So that chilling effect has already been achieved, regardless of what happens in negotiations. And then the fear that we're making it worse every time that we engage in a deal to bring someone home. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. On March 29th, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich was arrested in Russia and charged with espionage. The charges are spurious, but the intentions are clear. Evan Gershkovich is now a hostage in Russia, and his release will require a delicate diplomatic balancing act. My guest today, Dr. Danny Gilbert, is an academic who studies what she calls hostage diplomacy. She is the Edelson Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy and International Security at the John Sloan Dickey Center for International Understanding at Dartmouth College. We last spoke in June 2022, following the arrest of the American basketball star Brittany Griner. In our conversation today, we discuss the differences and similarities between the Griner case and the Gershkovich situation. We also discuss what processes might lead to Evan Gershkovich's release and how this latest wrongful detention of an American abroad fits into larger patterns around government-sponsored hostage-taking. And one quick announcement and call to action for you from me. I've just published my first note on Substack Notes and would love for you to join me there. It's kind of like Twitter, but more thoughtful in my opinion. Notes is a new space on Substack for us to share links, short posts, quotes, photos, and more. I plan to use it similar to how I used Twitter, like to share interesting links, offer some of my own analysis on international news, or to ask quick questions of the audience. So please join me on Notes, and I've posted a link in the show notes of this episode on how to get there. Thanks. Now, here is my conversation with Dr. Danny Gilbert of Dartmouth College. Can I just have you describe the circumstances such as we know it surrounding the arrest and detention of Evan Gershkovich? 
Evan Grishkovich was arrested on March 29th when he was on a reporting trip in Russia. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal living in Moscow and has lived there for the better part of six years, including being one of the few Western reporters who has stayed in Russia after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And he was arrested on the 29th of March and charged with espionage which is a very serious charge. It comes with 20 years possible imprisonment for this particular charge. And since the 29th of March has been in a detention center awaiting trial, only received a visit from a U.S. diplomats on Monday, the 17th of April. Yeah, and we're speaking just a couple hours after the U.S. ambassador to Russia tweeted that she'd had met Evan and that he seemed to be in good health. There are just a few elements of the circumstances around his arrest I wanted to ask you about. First, you know, it seems from reporting that he was on a reporting trip somewhere and that he was arrested in a kind of rural place doing some reporting. What does that suggest? to you about how he might have been tracked by the government? One of the things that we've seen in the stories coming out so far in the Kremlin statements about Evan is they're saying that he was, quote, caught red-handed trying to obtain secret information. So that's all part of their charge, that he is a spy, that he was somehow trying to obtain information that he should not have had access to. And There's kind of two sides to that that we really might think about. On the one hand, the Russian government has a clear track record of completely trumped up or egregious charges against Westerners that they use effectively to hold Westerners hostage, that these charges are either made up or woefully exaggerated. But on the other hand, it points out to us how draconian Russian laws have become regarding journalism and freedom of information. So over the last several years, Russia has introduced increasingly harsh laws that restrict the seeking and the publishing of independent sources of information, anything that might criticize Vladimir Putin or the Kremlin, or criticize or talk about the war in Ukraine. And so what we might look at in the West, in the United States, as Evan doing his job as a reporter in every legitimate way, going to seek legitimate information to write about it, that is the kind of activity that Vladimir Putin and his regime find incredibly threatening. So I don't know what Evan was doing at the moment that he was detained and arrested, but we can guess that whatever it was is something that the Kremlin found threatening. You know, assuming he was just like doing journalism, mm-hmm. what's the significance to you that he has been charged on espionage charges? So Evan is the first journalist that has been arrested in Russia on these kinds of charges since the Cold War. So it is hugely significant that he's facing these charges, that he's facing this kind of threat of being in prison for 20 years. I mean, it's an incredibly long period of time. So the fact that he is charged for spying, what does that suggest to you 
about the Kremlin's intentions in terms of wanting to hold him. One of the things that we know about espionage trials when they take place in Russia is that they take place completely behind closed doors. So unlike some of the trials that we've seen in the past, most notably Brittany Griner's trial last year when she was arrested in Russia, we won't have those court hearings. We won't see video or hear what happens in the courtroom, that all of this happens behind closed doors. and. Typically, when governments use their criminal justice system to take foreigners hostage, like I would argue Russia is doing in the case of Evan Gershkovich, espionage is a very common charge, and it's very convenient for these autocratic regimes because they don't have to demonstrate publicly the burden of proof that someone has violated a law. And so it leaves this question in the minds of, the rest of the world of maybe this person really was a spy. We don't really know what they were doing. And that's why it's so important that so many people have come out to firmly reject these charges from the Russian government, including the Wall Street Journal, including the U.S. government. The U.N. is circulating a declaration against this kind of behavior. And so you have the world community coming out to say that journalism is not a crime, that this is not spying. But the Russians have a very clever way of keeping it behind closed doors so that we'll never really see the truth. So I'm glad you brought up the Brittany Griner case because I wanted to ask you about similarities and differences between them. I mean, at least superficially, it seems they are similar in that you have high profile Americans arrested by the Russian government on kind of spurious charges, but in the Brittany Griner case, at least, I mean, she was ostensibly arrested when trying to pass through customs or security at an airport and had some like marijuana on her and they kind of threw the book at her. That seemed at least to me to be like hostage taking crime of opportunity. Whereas with the Evan Gershkovich situation, I mean, at least it seems to me a little more kind of premeditated and that they perhaps had this plot to arrest him. It wasn't just like he stumbled into it. I think that's exactly right. So I think that in many ways, Brittany Griner provided the Kremlin with what they considered a great opportunity. It was an American citizen who made a mistake. She fell into their hands and they were able to use her for maximum leverage to get what they wanted in that particular hostage taking. And I don't think that that's the case with Evan Gershkovich for a couple of reasons. One is that he was fully credentialed by the Kremlin to report in Russia. They knew that he was there. They knew what he was doing. Presumably, they've been watching him for a very long time. And so he was operating under the guise of safety that he was credentialed and was able to do what he was doing in Russia. And so I think that for many reasons, the arrest would have come as a big surprise. But he recently has been publishing not only about the conflict in Ukraine, but the last story of his that came out before he was detained was a story detailing all of the ways that Western sanctions have devastated Russia's economy. And so you could imagine that a story like that would really piss off people at the top. It would embarrass and anger Vladimir Putin. And so 
that's the kind of thing that journalism is about. It's about freedom of expression, that they have the right to publish these things that he was looking for, what's actually going on on the ground in Russia. But these increasingly draconian laws would find a way to catch him up. And so there's kind of motive there that they wouldn't like what he's doing. And the possibility, given that we don't know much about the circumstances in which he was detained, that potentially he was lured somewhere. And that's all kind of information that we don't know yet, but hopefully will come out in the weeks and months ahead. So with the Brittany Griner case, and I recommend that folks go back and listen to our conversation from last summer about that case, but you know, it was resolved through a prisoner swap between the United States and Russia with the United States giving up Victor Boot, a notorious international arms dealer. Like, in what way does the legacy of the Brittany Griner case suggest or inform anything about the Gershkovich situation? To some extent, it tells us a lot. In other senses, it opens up more questions that I'm thinking about and that others are thinking about. So a couple of the things that we learned last year in the swap that brought home Brittany Griner, in another prisoner swap that brought home American Trevor Reed, who had been imprisoned in Russia for several years, is that, first of all, we know that there are back channels of communication, that there are diplomatic channels that are open. The U.S. government is in conversation with officials from the Kremlin, with representatives from the Russian government that are able to negotiate and to make these trades. So despite ongoing geopolitical tensions, despite the U.S.'s firm disapproval of Russia's war in Ukraine, those conversations are still happening. So that's one thing that we know. Another thing that became very clear last year with Trevor Reed's return and later Brittany Griner's is that the United States government is clearly willing, in exceptional circumstances, to make concessions. They are willing to make these trades to bring American citizens home. And while these stories are definitely grabbing our attention now much more than they might have in the past, they are rare. This is not an everyday occurrence, but the U.S. government is thinking about the wide range of options that they might have and using the tools that they have to bring Americans home in these cases. And so prisoner swaps are on the table. That's a tool in the toolbox that the U.S. government is willing to use. We also learned last year that it's not always easy. So Paul Whelan, who has been detained in Russia for years at this point, who was also charged with espionage, was not a part of the deal that brought home Brittany Griner in December. If we take seriously what the White House and what the State Department have said about that deal is that they made every effort to bring home Paul Whelan along with Brittany Griner, that they wanted basically a two-for-one swap to bring home both of those Americans in exchange for Victor Boot, and that the Russian government completely balked. They would not allow Paul Whelan to come home as part of that deal. And so that suggests that when someone is charged with espionage, we might expect the price to be much higher. So for anyone who thought that Victor Boot was a difficult pill to swallow, the Russians might be asking for even more to bring home now two Americans that have been charged with espionage in Russia. Do you have a sense from following this so closely as you have over the years, what individuals in the U.S. criminal justice system right now the Russians might be seeking to repatriate? So... There are a couple of names that the Russians have 
floated in their own media, in past negotiations that we've heard of. There are individuals or at least one individual involved in cyber crimes, a hacker, if you will. There are also, interestingly, several Russians that are not being held in the U.S. criminal justice system who are being held in other countries that the Russian government thinks that they can use U.S. influence and pressure to have released and repatriated to Russia as part of a negotiation with the United States. So in the negotiations for Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, they were demanding the release of a convicted murderer being held in Germany, which ended up not being a part of this deal, but is clearly someone that the Russians hope to have released. And I was suspicious about the timing of Evans' arrest as it came just a couple of days after the charges for a Russian spy who's in prison in Brazil, who had spent some time in the United States and the charges in the United States for Sergei Cherkasov. So again, not someone who is in the United States, but potentially someone that the Russians would be interested in in this kind of deal. So that's interesting. So you're saying this Russian spy who claimed to be Brazilian. And if I'm remembering correctly, like he was a student at Johns Hopkins Sice and then tried to get like an internship Mm -hmm. or was an intern at the ICC for a while, but has been arrested in Brazil on charges of being a Russian spy. So you're saying that like the timing of his arrest recently is potentially suggestive of why Russia might have moved against Gershkovich recently. So presumably this means that in any prisoner swap that might include this guy, you're having like the Brazilians negotiate with the Americans and negotiate with the Russians in in some complex three-party diplomacy? Yeah, so I have no privileged information when it comes to what's happening with Sergei Cherkasov. I bring him up and question this is purely this issue of timing and what sometimes looks like a good match of a person, of a charge, that we might see some symmetry there. So one of the key identifying factors of hostage diplomacy is a notion of tit for tat. Rarely do governments come out and explicitly say, we are holding your citizen hostage. Instead, what they do is they arrest someone, they pretend that it's completely justified, and Only later do they start implying what might be an appropriate trade for someone. And so in other cases, and particularly in the case of Chinese hostage diplomacy, they like to arrest people as tit-for-tat retaliation for things that happen against Chinese citizens or the Chinese regime. And so when Evan was arrested just a couple of days after the charges against Cherkasov, I started to wonder, you know, was this in some way seen as retaliation for espionage accusations? Was it some way seen as tit for tat? And in the past, in hostage diplomacy cases, we have not openly seen the United States government engage third-party countries to have a prisoner swap. However, third-party countries were used all the time in swaps for other hostages, and other governments have engaged third parties when they work for prisoner exchanges in hostage diplomacy. So I don't think it's completely out of the question that as this case unfolds, 
it's entirely possible that other countries might somehow get involved. How has thus far the Biden administration responded to or approached the arrest of Evan? Two of the things that have happened right away, very, very quickly in this case that I think are are worth mentioning is that first, Secretary Blinken, just a few days after Evan's arrest, made very public statement to the Russians and to the American public condemning Evan's detention, demanding that the Russians release him. And so this has already made its way absolutely to the highest levels of the U.S. government. Last week, the United States government designated Evan as wrongfully detained. So that's a special designation that your listeners might remember from Brittany Griner's ordeal, which basically means that the U.S. government considers this arrest to be arbitrary or otherwise unjust, somehow in violation of the rule of law, or that the American is being held as a hostage, that they're being held for leverage of some sort. And it means that their case is transferred to a special office at the State Department called the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, effectively the U.S. chief diplomat working on hostage negotiations, which is to say that the U.S. government will be making efforts to try to bring him home. And Evan received that designation faster than any other American has ever received that designation before. And what happens when there's a a case of an American arrested abroad, normally there's no such designation or conversation about a wrongful or unlawful detention. Usually when Americans are arrested abroad, it's because the American broke a law that is fair and the U.S. government does not need to intervene to try to bring that person home. But in the rare cases where there is a suspicion that there is something arbitrary about the case. The State Department tries to collect all of the information that it can about the circumstances of the arrest, about what might have happened, you know, when that person got detained, human rights reports about the risks that they might face in prison, things like that. And they put together a memo for the Secretary of State who ultimately makes the determination if someone should receive that designation or not. So sometimes that's a deliberative process that can take months. I mean, in Brittany Griner's case, she was arrested in February. She received that wrongful detention designation in May. But in Evan's case, it happened within just a couple of weeks. So we can tell that the State Department, that the Biden administration is certainly paying attention to this case and is going to be involved in doing whatever it can to get him out as soon as possible. So I'd be interested in having you put this situation in the broader context of what you call hostage diplomacy and trends in hostage diplomacy. You know, you've spent a career studying these sorts of things How does this situation fit into broader trends in what you've studied over the years in terms of hostage situations and and how these events get sorted out? So one of the things that I think really became part of the public conversation last year around Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan and Trevor Reed is recognizing that the U.S. government is willing to negotiate, is willing to make concessions and trades to recover our citizens from the painful and arbitrary and long and unfair situations that they're experiencing overseas is this question of future incentive. So 
is Vladimir Putin learning that all you have to do is arrest an American and you can bring the Biden administration to the negotiating table to give things up that the U.S. government might not want to give up to an adversary engaged in this kind of war. So there's a real fear that every time the U.S. government does what it has to do, makes the difficult decisions to negotiate and to bring our citizens home, that it's making the situation more dangerous for future Americans, for other Westerners, and rewarding our adversaries for bad behavior. It's the whole, like, we don't negotiate with terrorists sort of situation. Totally. And and there's an assumption that we don't, even though the U.S. government has long negotiated with hostage takers of all stripes. But there are really compelling reasons not to, one of which is the fear of incentivizing more hostage taking. And so we can look at the situation and worry that not only is Vladimir Putin concerned about the information environment in Russia and imposing all kinds of restrictions on freedom of speech and freedom of reporting and journalists and press that regardless of what happens in negotiations for Evan Gershkovich, that there is now reasons that people wouldn't try to report in Moscow, reasons that a lot of journalists have newly left the country who were remaining there. So that chilling effect has already been achieved, regardless of what happens in negotiations. And then the fear that we're making it worse every time that we engage in a deal to bring someone home. And so the real question, I think, that I and hopefully others will figure out is, what can we do to deter this practice? How can we stop it from happening? And how can we do that in a way that doesn't come at the expense of the Americans who are currently being held hostage abroad. And lastly, in the coming weeks or months even, what sort of indicators will you be looking towards that will suggest to you how the Gershkovich situation may evolve or unfold? Are there any key moments in the near term that you're looking towards? So the first key moment I was looking for uh, just happened last week, which is when the U.S. designated him as wrongfully detained. That's always the first step. But there are several other steps that we might see in the coming weeks and months, even if these cases typically unfold behind closed doors. And this case in particular will unfold behind closed doors because of the nature of the espionage trial. So unlike in the cases last year, we will not expect to see the moments of his trial publicized. We won't see that kind of thing, but we might know when he is, I say when, not if, he is convicted because I am expecting that that will go through on the Russian side. The trial will not be fair. It will probably be completely arbitrary on totally trumped up charges and evidence, but I expect that he will be found guilty. And in the past, the Russians have made it clear that they are not willing to negotiate until someone has been found guilty. They are committed to the guise that this is a legitimate criminal proceeding. And so for them to do that, they have to walk him through the steps. And so we'll be looking for the timeline of that for when all the formal steps of his trial have taken place. And When the U.S. government is negotiating or if other third parties get involved and are negotiating, we still expect that to happen behind closed doors or behind the scenes. And so there won't be very much for us to see in the public. So what I expect is that we will hear uh, different waves of 
attention to the case and advocacy for Evan coming from other journalists, from the Wall Street Journal, from organizations that care about press freedom. I'll be interested to see what happens with the statement at the UN, which other countries are going to speak out against the unjust and arbitrary nature of his arrest and these attacks on journalists. And hopefully before too long, we will see him and Paul Whelan come home. But the note of caution that that I will express and that I think people became very familiar with watching Brittany Griner's ordeal last year is that these cases unfold in the timeline of weeks, months, or years. And if we look at the espionage cases of the past, we should be settling in for a long wait. And hopefully Evan will come home soon. But I imagine this will take quite a long time. Danny, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.